Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Hello, friends. Just a quick heads up before we start the podcast this week. We're in a series called At the Movies, where we are looking for three weeks at different movies uh, that are really popular right now. Because of copyright uh, laws and that kind of thing, we aren't able to play the audio from the movies. So we had to delete that section of the sermon, which will make sense when you listen to it. We hope you enjoy seeing how some powerful truths are in some of the movies that we love. As a church, we want to hold up the cultural products that, uh, that we produce in our society. Um, we want to point out what's good and beautiful and true through what our culture making is producing. And uh, in our world, there can be a huge separation between sec- secular and sacred, between what happens in church and outside the church, when in actuality, there are many times that we see the greatest longings within the human desire actually point us to the most true things about our gospel. And for some, for, for some of these movies and these stories, they resonate so deeply within us because we believe there's, there's some deep gospel truth uh, that they are teaching us. And so today is one of those uh, stories. The middle of the 20th century was the golden age for road travel in America. Cars finally had become cheap enough and large enough to throw the family in and drive across the country. And in 1956, the interstate highway system started to connect the country's many different uh, states so that you could drive, finally drive from New York to California, seeing the beauty of America along the way. But that freedom and mobility, however, was not available for everyone. In 1956, the same year that the interstate highway system was in place, so was Jim Crow. Jim Crow was still the law of the land that enforced segregation. This made the reality of cross-country Uh, elusive and at a distance for many African-American people, made their trips complicated and sometimes even dangerous. So 20 years before that, in 1936, a man named Victor Hugo Green was a mailman in New Jersey. And he grew tired of encountering discrimination as he traveled. And he had this idea of starting to collect the names of businesses and establishments, uh, restaurants and motels that were friendly to African-American travelers. And he made this, comp- this compiling work. He named it the Negro Motorist Green Book. Later it would be called simply the Green Book for short. And Green tapped into a nationwide network. He, he wanted to f- have this accessible for every state in, in, in our union. And so using his postal worker background, he tapped into the people who know our society the best, our postmen, post, uh, post ladies. Is that a word, post ladies? Yeah, postal workers, we'll say that. Filling in the gap state to state. And uh, it was this combination of this work, creating a guide that allowed safe travel, uh, is what gave the inspiration for the name of this movie, this Oscar-winning film. This film tells the tale of two different individuals, very unlikely couple. First, Dr. Don Shirley, an African-American who goes on a tour of the deep segregated South in 1960s and hires an Italian-American by the name of Tony Lip Vallelonga to be a chauffeur and kind of his bodyguard. Dr. Shirley is one of the most accomplished pianists at this time. He gave his first public concert at the age of three. What what were you doing at the age of three? Uh, He played with the Boston Pops at 18. He earned three doctorates in music and psychology and in the liturgical arts. 
He, he knew eight different languages, and he played the piano like no one else. But in the midst of the success and accomplishment, he was also a torn individual. He was estranged from his family. He was alone. But in this moment, Dr. Shirley decides that he would like to have a concert through the Deep South, and so this would require a driver with particular skills. Enters uh, Tony Lip Vallelonga. He was born in 1930 to a working-class Italian um, parents and grew up in the Bronx. He grew up in the same neighborhood that he, he was born in. He raised his family there, overwhelmingly inter- integrated within that community. As an adult, he became a bouncer and then later on the maitre d' uh, at the famous Copacabana. Uh, this is a picture of, of him with Mickey Mantle on the left, Tony on the right. Uh, Joe DiMaggio. Yeah, I'm a bro. I know this. Yeah. So that's him on the left. Mickey Mantle. Um, Oral Hershiser, whoever that is. Uh, yes. I do, uh, unfortunately, I do know this, that Von Longa would later become an actor and he would be found in recurring roles in The Sopranos, if you didn't know that. I don't know this from personal experience as your pastor. I haven't watched that. Tony would, was uh, introduced as, in this movie early on as the protagonist, and uh, we described some of the literary terms in our Live a Better Story series as we talked about some time ago. The protagonist is the person in the story, the character in the story, that the story most changes. It's the person that goes through the greatest transformation, either for the better or for the worst. And here in this plot, we find, that, uh, we find two characters, both Tony and Dr. Uh, Shirley are both stuck. And it, for status quo to be disruptive, there has to be an inciting incident, something to disrupt that status quo and to move the story into uncharted territory. And in this story, it was the closing of the Copacabana for renovations. Tony was broke, he needed money, so he started looking around. And this scene takes place after Tony had worked all night at the last night of the, of when the Copacabana was open. He runs home at the end of the, at the long shift, kisses the kids, he crawls into bed just as the sun begins to rise. And when he wakes up, we find uh, a character flaw that we find in this emerging scene. So let's now check out. So in this one scene, we are, we are caught up with a little bit more of what's going on in the deeper plot line. We have here the, the, the voice of moral authority and his wife showing hospitality, welcome for these two workers who are helping uh, fix whatever broke down. And we have here Tony in the midst of this scene of, uh, of an us-versus-them game, he walks into the situation with an us-versus-them mentality there in his home. And he does the opposite of what his wife is doing with his extending welcome and hospitality and warmth and dignity. We find in this moment this character flaw in Tony. And how does it end? Transitions for them saying the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Stark dichotomy of loving God and yet being prejudiced against your fellow human. This would extend to their journey in the South where Shirley, Dr. Shirley faces the greatest hatred from the very people who supposedly are the most religious. And so they are so different, Dr. Shirley and Tony, yet they need one another, and thus begins their experience and their journey together. And although this movie caught some flack about taking this issue of racial reconciliation and, and microwaving it to a very clean-cut experience, 
I found that this movie had many uh, powerful messages. First off, this is a movie about racism. As Dr. Shirley and Tony would make their way deeper into the Jim Crow South, they would continue to butt up against restrictions and limitations and barriers placed upon the African-American community. Dr. Shirley, each time as he would encounter this, he would respectfully press against the restrictions. And most of the time, <clears throat> the white folks, when, when asked and pressed why, uh, they would just respond with, this is simply just how it is down here. These are just the rules. And in one scene, Dr. Shirley asked back, and who made up these rules? Without much of an answer, it was just assumed that this is just how it is. The reality in our world is that there still are unspoken rules at play that limit and discriminate against our fellow humanity. And instead, we just, when we're asked about who made up these rules, we're just said, well, this is how it is. This is how our world is. It's the way it's always been. It's within that mentality that we have and understand this notion of institutional racism. It's the historic profiling and privilege of one person over another. And usually the dominant race, the dominant community within that society is usually the most blind to even see it and recognize it. For instance, I was visiting with an African-American friend of mine. She was a mother of, uh, of three, um, three young men from the ages of 16 to 20. And she, when I was visiting with her, we were talking about this idea of just how blind we are to our own um, background. And I, you know, I shared with just great honesty that I've been primarily in a predominantly Caucasian uh, community my whole life. I haven't had much diversity. And I don't even understand what, I, what it would be like to enter into that. And she said, well, when did your parents have the conversation with, with you about what to do when you get pulled over? And I said, what, what do you mean? She said, in the African-American community, especially with young men, there is a conversation we have to have about remaining incredibly calm and peaceful, even when things begin to heighten, that our, our sons, it doesn't matter who they're with, they're the ones who are going to be the most calm and most present. And I told her, I've never had that conversation with my, with my parents. We have a lot to learn about the way in which there's institutional racism and privilege that exists in our world. And of course, like all sin is ugly, but racism uniquely denies a basic core tenet that we believe and we hold, that all people, every single person is created in the image of God. Every person has God-given value, inherent value, by the very nature that they are two image bearers. In my mind, the, the sin of racism is threefold. First, it's the sin against the other who you're breaking down. It's the degradation of, of that image in the other that sees and refutes the, God's good work in them. Secondly, the sin is dishonoring against God who places his image upon all of humanity. And finally, I believe it's a sin against self because it's, it's impossible to attack the image of God in someone else without destroying a bit of your own humanity. So we're interconnected with one another. How I treat the image of God in you is how I see the image of God in myself. And the issue of racism goes against the way of Jesus. This is not just a social issue. It is a sin issue. And the work of Jesus and his kingdom attacked many different things, but one of them was the barriers 
and the values that we draw between one another, all who bear God's image. This is one of the major surprises of Jesus's, uh, after Jesus' resurrection. The work of God's Spirit was not just limited to the Jewish nation. They really saw Jesus as the Jewish Messiah that would bring about new life, a new reign for the Jewish people. But what happened as soon as Jesus was raised from the dead, even in his own life, but especially when his spirit was poured out for the first time upon people, it was while the nations were gathered together, that God's work was for it to spill out outside the barriers that they were drawing for God to exist in and go to all people. This is what God's kingdom is. It's a worldwide kingdom. It's not just an ethnic group, a race, a people group. It's for the whole world. And the church struggled to make sense of this new reality. Paul, when he addressed how God's Spirit was reaching communities that they did not expect, he wrote in his letter to the church of Galatia, he wrote in this letter that Paul instructed the church's preconceived notions of who was God's chosen people. Though in the past God's people were specifically to the Jewish nation, now was reaching beyond those walls. In Galatians 3, it says this in 3.26-29, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Not through nationality, not through where you were born, but through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ Have clothed yourself with Christ. This is what you wear. This is your image in this world. You are clothed now with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. What that's saying is you are God's chosen people. God's covenant relationship is with you if you're in Christ and heirs to the promise. Even though this might seem like ancient and dusty Scripture, for the original audience, this was radical. Because of the work of Jesus, the lines that used to distinguish between us and them, who was in and out, were over and done with. The same words that the Southerners in this movie use, it's just how it is down here. Those same words were the words that the Jewish community used to keep the Gentiles away. It's just the way it is. Furthermore, it's what God would have it to be. But then there's the work of Christ. Breaking down this wall. Clothing all, with the ability to clothe all with His image and likeness. Paul is saying because of the work of the Gospel, those rules are now abolished. Those who are the outside looking in, you now belong to Christ Jesus. You are now a child and heir to that promise. The work of the gospel was then and is now breaking down every single dividing wall that this world tries to, to set between you and I, the values between people groups. Therefore, the church must be people who seek not only to embrace whoever embodies the other, but also seeks to change the historic ways in which the image of God is attacked and other people. We must change the way it is wherever we are. And in the words of Tony Lip in this movie, the world is full of lonely people afraid of making the first move. The people of Jesus are the people of the first move. But how do we do that? This movie is also a movie about how change takes place. What we find in this movie is an instruction of how change will take place in our world. Dr. Shirley seems to be a man between worlds. 
Some might say he lived before his time, but I don't think that would do him justice. It was, it was not he that was ahead of time, but it was the world that was stuck. And it took men and women like Dr. Shirley to wake us up, to pry us out of our ignorance and bigotry and racism. And how were we able to have this new perspective? Well, I think this story, this story shows us how. We encounter vulnerable courage. That's how we change. That's how we see differently. I believe change happens when we encounter vulnerable courage in others, that transformative change doesn't happen through coercion or force. It's not when it's mandated, but it's when we experience vulnerability, humanity, compassion, and love, then we're changed from the inside out. The Green Book contrasts this tough-talking, uh, punch-throwing ways of Tony that he learned from Joe DiMaggio in that picture and the dignified, nonviolent character of Dr. Shirley. And their differences come to head in this one scene in Mississippi when the two end up in jail after Tony hits a policeman who insulted Tony with a racial slur about being Italian. And in that jail cell, Dr. Shirley said, you will never win with violence. He's setting up a different way of transformation. You will never win with violence. You only win when you maintain your dignity because dignity always prevails. By using vulnerable nonviolence, Dr. Shirley was refuting the power of oppression by other, the, the means that this world would use. He uses vulnerable courage and he used a piano. Martin Luther King once said that nonviolence is a powerful and just weapon. Indeed, it is a weapon unique in our history which cuts without wounding and ennobles the man who wields it. And Martin Luther King's strategy of vulnerable courage through nonviolence, it changed us, it changed the world. And this is how Christ-like courage came to be, how it's displayed to us. Paul instructs the church in Rome in similar words, in Romans 12, 21, do not, be overcome, do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's this call to, to not use the ways of this world to try to overcome evil, but using goodness to overcome the ways of evil. These are the markers of Christ's kingdom. This movie demonstrates this power of overcoming evil with good in one scene after being refused to use the restroom at a place that Dr. Shirley was performing. He was shown where the outhouse was in the back, and Dr. Shirley chooses not to use that place. Instead, he makes the long trip back to his motel to use the restroom to, before he comes back to finish the concert. And watching, as Tony was watching Dr. Shirley do this, after the performance, he treated everyone there with great respect. And Tony, in his Italian way, says, I don't understand how he could do this. That question just sits there for half an hour as you watch this movie. How is, how, why is he doing this? Why is he here? I don't even get this. Until finally, one of the last scenes, we find the explanation here. What we see here is this fact that uh, what changes people's hearts is not just genius, but it's vulnerable courage. It's this display of vulnerable courage that changes people. This is one of the lessons that Dr. Shirley was not only trying to teach the people in the South that he encountered, but also Tony. It is the power of vulnerable courage in someone's presence. And that's the way of Jesus. Jesus did not come to this world to repay evil with evil. He did not take up and enact revenge Instead, he went to those who were called the enemy and he blessed them, he served them, he cared for them, he laid down his life for them, 
Even this morning as we were worshiping, I had this picture of Jesus upon the cross with his arms stretched out, almost reaching out to the two criminals on either side, reaching out, embracing them in that final moment. This is who Jesus was, that picture of vulnerable courage that he left us with on the cross. And it is through his courageous vulnerability that redemption came to this world, not just for some, but the invitation for all. Ephesians 2 speaks of this work that Jesus extends through his vulnerable courage of meeting people who they were outside those racial lines that were drawn. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ through his sacrifice, through his vulnerability. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. We think that the work of Jesus on the cross was just to, just to prepare a way for me to experience a right relationship with God when in fact it also prepares me to have right relationship with you, with everyone in our world. Because we are now found in Christ together. His, purposes, his purpose was to create in Himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which He put to death their hostility. This is the one. This is the Jesus whose image we bear in this world. One of compassion. One of love. A Savior who laid down His life to break down the wall of hostility that divides us so that we could experience deep peace. True peace. Not only with God, but with one another. This movie ends with a demonstration of mutual transformation. Uh, the goal for their trip as they were going through the South was uh, on the night before Christmas Eve, they were having the, the final performance, I think, in Birmingham. And uh, they had to make their way all the way from Birmingham up to New York City. And their goal was to make it there for Christmas Eve so that Tony could be with his family. But Tony couldn't drive the whole way, so along the way he falls asleep in the back of the car. And it ends with this beautiful reversal of roles where Dr. Shirley wakes up and ends up driving the rest of the way to drop off Tony to be with his family. And as they get home, like many of us, when we have an experience away from home, remember when you were a kid and you grew up at camp, you kind of come back home, you wonder if anything's really different, if anything's really changed. So we find in this scene that kind of shows the transformation that took place. This, uh, this movie ends with that final scene because it shows the transformation. Those are the two scenes that we first uh, met Tony in as well as the doctor. Dr. Shirley, we found him, the first scene where we encountered him, we were sitting on this throne looking down on everyone, removed and separated. Didn't have any relationships other than the people who were hired to help him. But he was surrounded by his relics and the artifacts that reminded him of his power and his affluence. He was completely alone. We had Tony, on the other hand, surrounded by family. There's not a scene in this movie where there wasn't like 20 people in his home. Yet, uh, he needed to go through transformation. In this final scene, not only does, does Dr. Shirley actually have the courage, the vulnerable courage now to not only step into the deep south to, to, uh, to confront that uh, systematic racism, but also he has the vulnerable courage enough to step into relationship, to walk into someone's home. For this first time, the only time in this whole movie that Tony calls him Dr. Donald Shirley with respect and honor, we see him delight in the fact that he has a special guest of honor that came to his home.
We see this transformation that happened. This movie left me, though, with a question. Left me with a question of the same idea that the Green Book is labeled places that are safe for people to go to. People who have been marginalized and people who are vulnerable, people who have been exploited, people who have been said that they don't belong. It makes me wonder if the, the Green Book is labeled places of refuge, if the church is this. If the church would, would be labeled places of safety and refuge for people who have been ostracized. And when I say the church, I don't just mean like our worship and our church facilities. I just also mean our homes, the places in which um, um, our lives encounter our society, places of relationship. If those places are places where we engage our society with compassion, with love, and acceptance, believing that Jesus and His love and His mercy can reach all people and the barriers in which that we have allowed this world to convince us that exists between all God's children that the love of God can't tear down through Jesus' presence. And as this movie teaches us, this world is full of people too afraid or too scared, or maybe they've just been taught that they don't belong. But the love of God always initiates. It always teaches us as fathers of Jesus that we are called to take the first step to create that refuge that safe place, that sense of home for all. May it be so. May it be so for our church. May it be so for your life as well.